Good morning and welcome to episode 7 of Crownsman Energy. Today we are joined by David Yeager. He is the president and CEO of Winterhawk Well Abandonment. He is also the author of From Miracle to Menace. He is here to discuss the energy sector in Alberta and Canada. Now, before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. We are sponsored by Savannah Equipment. Are you working on pipelines, oil and gas projects, renewable energy or LNG, and need to save some cash? Savannah Equipment has industrial pumps, electrical equipment, from motors to transformers, and even surplus pipe and much, much more available now. Visit SavannahEquipment.com to view all their inventory. Again, that is SavannahEquipment.com, where you will find more equipment every day. We are also sponsored by PowerZone. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas pipelines, dewatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit PowerZone.com. In addition to their inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com. Now let's get started with Episode 7 of Crownsman Energy. Hello and welcome to Crownsman Energy. I'm your host, Jared Downey. And today on the show, we have David Yeager. Uh, David, thank you for coming on the show. I'm actually going to let you do a little intro to yourself. Um, you're, you're an author. You're the president and CEO of Winterhawk. So can you give us a snapshot? And then I want to jump right into some topics here. Oh, beautiful. I'm a second generation oilfield service. My dad was in the business, uh, actually, since Leduc. I uh, grew up in the business, and uh, I have been a writer. I used to own an oil field trade magazine. That's when I started writing over 40 years ago. I've also been the founder and uh, uh, three uh, TSX-listed oil field service companies. So I've been in this business all my life at multiple levels, as you said in the intro, both as an investor and an operator, worked in the field. Worked, my joke is I worked in the middle of night, in the middle of winter, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I, this Winterhawk assignment, is uh, actually the company was founded by my brother-in-law, uh, and he had a uh, serious accident. So I just came out of retirement on the oil field service side to, to help my bro- help my brother-in-law. It's a fascinating technology. We'll get to that. But yeah, yeah. My, my retirement job is a writer and policy commentator. And regrettably, there's certainly a lot to talk about these days. There is. We're going we're gonna to cover quite a few topics. And I, I really wanted to kick off this show um, talking about the well abandonment. Um, because there's obviously now this this um, this funding coming from the federal government, and so I want to talk about two things. There's there's going to be a certain portion of our population that they hear the term well abandonment, but they don't actually know what it is. So first, I want to can you just give us a snapshot? I think we have a chart that you sent over. We'll bring that up on the screen as well. Um, can you walk the audience through first the, the, the simple version of what it is? And then we'll talk a little bit about the government program. Well, there's been something like uh, going back to the early days of uh, when we found gas in the late 1800s and Turner Valley a century ago. There's been something like 500,000 or more holes drilled in in what's called the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. And well abandonment is simply when the if it's uh, when you're drilling a well and uh, there's nothing in it, it's called you abandon the well and just give up on it. And then there's the end of life retirement, which is called well abandonment. And it's really mature asset re- retirement. Every resource industry does that. If it's a, if it's a pulp mill and it's no longer uh, you know, functional, economically viable, or you're supposed to clean it up, same thing with a client. So same thing with the oil and gas wells is after 
after a well is no longer economic to produce, uh, you're meant to abandon the well bore and reclaim the site. And so there is, uh, there's quite a number of them. Uh, for some reason, uh, the our industries, uh, mature asset cleanup obligations have become uh, more newsworthy than those of others. But it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. Well, it's, you know, let's go to Detroit if you want to see mature asset retirement that never got retired. <laughs> there's a you know, it's the same thing if you go to uh, you know find uh, abandoned shopping malls. You know, it's all the same thing. Is there's commercial assets that are no longer economically viable, and the owner is meant to tidy it up before they go home. And uh, in the oil and gas industry, we have hundreds of thousands of these things, and so it's become a political issue. What What does it entail usually? I, I know I know Winterhawk does some of the technology, so we'll get into it. But in general, what it actually does it entail, though, what doing. Uh, doing the abandonment uh, shutdown properly. Like what, what's the, well, I guess let's get into the government funding. What is the government funding uh, designed to accomplish? Well, the problem is, is the owner of the license, when you license the mineral rights from the Crown, most of it's government owned, you have a fiduciary obligation in the lease to clean it up when it's done. What's happened though is unfortunately because of the economic downturn, uh, the collapse of cash flow. <laughs> with which to pay for these abandonments or well site reclamations has exceeded the pace at which they're being done. The other thing is, is there's a case to be made and there's sometimes uh, there's a question of whether you should, when you should abandon, truly abandon a well bore. And that is because sometimes new technology comes along and you've discovered uh, a new technology that could resuscitate that asset. So there's commercial reasons, right. fiduciary reasons and economic reasons. The program itself is multifaceted. There's a subsurface portion where you go into the well and you plug, you seal it off. You have to go actually put a rig on the hole, enter the well, put a plug in the bottom, pour cement, cut off the casing, seal it, and then you do the site reclamation or the surface reclamation. Often there's a pump jack or a tank that has to be cleaned up. And then there's a site reclamation, which has there been any chemical spillage? Have you spilled any oil? Have you dumped any diesel? Is there salt water or whatever? So it's three phases. There's the downhole side, the surface equipment, including what pipelines may be in place, and then there's the site reclamation. In a perfect world, say on a farmer's field, uh, in a perfect world, you'd never know it was there. They would uh, abandon the well, clean up the site, put the soil back on, you'd cultivate over it, and you would never know there was ever a well there. And that's happened in the case of really hundreds of thousands of wells in Western Canada in the last 40 years. How much like a program like this? I, I actually, I can't think of, I can't remember the dollar amount right now, but it was, I mean, obviously it was a, a, a fair chunk of money, but how much, uh, how much business will that actually create though? And I mean, of course, it's sort of a short term, it's sort of a bandage on a, on a big wound for the energy sector. So, but how, mu how much opportunity does that create actually for, uh, for employment in Alberta and for some of these companies that are sitting idle right now to, to activate? Actually, it's fantastic in terms of when the alternative is doing nothing. It's spectacular. To, to abandon <laughs> or to totally reclaim, to do the complete site reclamation on a simple well, let me define a simple well. That would be a sweet, a shallow gas well down in southern Alberta that never produced any water or oil. The site's clean, the site's quite simple. Site simple. You may be able to uh, abandon that wellbore, clean up the surface or reclamation, reseed it, return to normal like 50,000 bucks. Uh, 
Some of the more complex uh, site reclamations, uh, the all-time record of a leaking gas well, I believe somewhere in British Columbia was $8 million. And so oh. it really depends. Yeah, yeah. So on a given wellbore, uh, on a given site, uh, you probably need 20 or 30 different services, and they, they really depend on depth, complexity, and what the contents were. But uh, $1.7 $1. is is a significant amount of money. And on a good year, uh, the total investment upstream in oil and gas, uh, on a typical year, they might the total investment might be $20 billion. So this, this could be up to 10% of all the activity that might happen in a good year. So when right. uh, when you're in a situation where, where oil for a while went negative, and, uh, and the production is shut in. Uh, this is really welcome relief uh, to keep small town Alberta working it's, and small town Western Canada working. It's welcome, welcome that stimulus activity. And it is indeed work, environmental work and cleanup work that wouldn't be done otherwise. So it's a very welcome program for the working oil patch. Right. Um, and, and I was I was going to ask, so I, we've had a couple of people on our show that have, uh, I mean, they're bringing on these technologies um, that uh, are going to uh, essentially that they hope increase the recovery, increase the amount that can be recovered from a well. When these wells are, you know, you said you, you plug them and you put in the cement and all this is completed. Can that ever be activated again? Is it is it a huge process to if if technology comes along that makes that uh, a valuable asset? Um, can it can it be re-entered? No, you're gonna have to re-drill it. If uh, it's more sense, it makes more sense if you've got a well a well bore. And I'm talking about the hole in the ground. If that well is properly abandoned, with sealed and uh, and shut off, it's probably cheaper nowadays to just twin it. Well, this goes back to what I said earlier. If you look at about whether or not you really want to abandon the well, a great number of the wells, for example, people see the statistics. Uh, there's something like uh, 100,000 inactive wells in Western Canada. A lot of them are related to low gas prices. Uh, okay. Very low gas prices. Yeah. So, so in the end, you just assume wait if there's a chance that natural gas prices prices could improve. For example, LNG Canada or the market improves. You'd actually just turn that well back on. So you have right. to be careful when you talk about there's there's a the there's the, it, the terminology gets confusing. The, there's something called the Orphan Well Association. Now those wells are abandoned not all, only by the owner. Their ownership is abandoned. The well bore hasn't been abandoned. The company that owned them went broke, and so they become an orphan well, an ownerless well. So the person with the legal responsibility to reclaim the site is is financially insolvent. So that is an issue, but that's at last count, that was only 5,000 wells. I would say of the 100,000 odd wells that are suspended in Alberta, they're not all owned by delinquent owners. It's not a massive case of oil and gas industry irresponsibility. If the price of natural gas would, would go back to anything like what it used to be, many of these wells would come back on stream. So when you're inactive wells is, is, a, is a giant bundle of assets, if you will, there's expired wells that are waiting, uh, uh, waiting site reclamation. There's suspended wells that are shut in for economic reason. And then there's truly a, abandoned wells, abandoned meaning the owner's gone broke. They're off in the Orphan Well Association. And that has become a responsibility of the, of the Crown. So that would lead me to the question, David, that this amount of funding that's coming from the federal government for these abandoned wells, will it be enough to to take care of all the 
all the wells that are actually exp expired that will not come back online? Probably not. Uh, probably not. You can see at, uh, say, uh, there's an average cost at, uh, of $100,000. I think that that's only 1,700 wells at most. So if you oh, I see. This is 5,000. Yeah, well, it depends on the type of the well, the cost, and the complexity. But, but again, right. not all that money is going into well bores as well. Some of that funds is being, some of those funds are being used to clean up uh, abandoned pipelines, um, uh, you know, surface facilities, old gas plants. It's not all going into uh, right. well bores per se. That's the number we talk about because that's the number, the easiest one to count. But there are also right. associated with these well bores. There's abandoned facilities. Some wells have got uh, situations where the well board's abandoned, but the site isn't cleaned up. You know, the, the farmer's uh, road, the access road, and the site hasn't been cleaned, cleaned up, so it's all over the map. But no, it's not going, it's not going to solve the problem entirely, uh, but it's certainly going to, it's going to stimulate the activity. It is uh, going to keep a lot of people around for when the industry recovers, keep a, a lot of companies solvent. Uh, keep that skilled labor force from having to do mm -hmm. something else if there was anything else to do. And uh, it'll help the balance sheets of the companies. You know, what you have to do if you are, if you own a, if you own oil and gas leases, you have to on the liability uh, side of your balance sheet, you have to keep a, uh, a scorecard. You have to have a, a provision for future asset retirements. It also affects your borrowing capability of the bank. So this has a this improves your your asset liability ratio with your seniors with your banker. So it fixes up a number of things actually. It's I a, see. It's a multifaceted and very worthwhile deployment. What's interesting about this type of funding is when it comes from the government, they actually recover quite a portion of it uh, through payroll deductions and fuel taxes. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, because it goes directly into uh, field activity. Uh, so the, the crown, the crown, the crown, I say the crown because I see crownsmen in the background. The crown is the term <laughs> for the government, of the government. We call it a crown mineral license, which is the history going back to the queen, right? Anyway, right, so, yeah. the, so the crown, the government does recover with this type of economic stimulus. They do recover a more significant portion than you think. In, in direct payroll taxes, fuel taxes, excise tax, industrial activity uh, that wouldn't occur otherwise. They get it in PST, depending where you are, they get it in GST. So it's not really, uh, you know, they call it a subsidy. It's, it, it is, it is, it's, but it, they do claw some back. Right, and the, and the hope is uh, hopefully the prices will go back up and then these companies can stay active, keep people employed. Five years from now, they, the idea is that they actually make more back on the investment, right? Uh, they should, it should, there is a tremendous case. Uh, the industry will come back, we'll get to that. Uh, but there is, uh, it, it's an investment in the infrastructure, both human and physical. I mean, the capital yes. infrastructure, you have the equipment in the background, so you've got a train and a couple excavators, a little piece of a John Deere sticking around your shelf. Yeah, we need someone to set. We need someone to send us an oil, some oil uh, models for the back. So if you know anybody who wants to donate, oh boy, yeah. actually you can get a, you can get the real McCoy if it would fit. You could probably get yourself a whole rig to set up at. Uh, oh, don't start giving shit. people ideas. <laughs> so there's both the capital assets, but more important, there's the human assets. And yeah. The, the old saying goes: "Is oil is found in the minds of men." Uh, you still need the brain power to do it. So this is an also right. investment in our human, human capital, which is essential 
to the future. Well, thanks for breaking it down, David, because I know it, it is one of these things that's kind of floated around the news for a while, but I, I guarantee 80% of the people that hear it actually don't know what it, uh, some of the details of it. So thanks for breaking it down. And I want to jump through, I want to get to your book. I want to talk about Winterhawk. So you said you're the president, uh, you're the president and CEO of Winterha Winterhawk Technology. Uh, let's get into what they're doing, um, their business model and, and some of the new technology that they've got in the market right now. Winterhawk was uh, conceived, my brother-in-law uh, is, uh, is a very clever design engineer. He cut his teeth with Imperial Oil in the early days of steam-assisted gravity drainage at Cold Lake, and he's a problem solver. And so he, with Winterhawk, he's really come up with three different uh, uh, technologies. Uh, one of the first ones was actually site reclamation, and this was invented. There was a tender put out some time ago to clean up the oil spill in Kuwait. They left somehow, something like 300 million barrels of oil was left over after the first Gulf War. And he was instructing over there and they, they put out a tender. And of course, because he came from the oil sand, separating oil from sand is where he grew up. So one of them is a site reclamation technology. The program got canceled, but that lives on. That's a very fascinating patent. We're just exploring whether somebody wants to use that for using what's called on-site, in-situ or in-place, cleaning up uh, contaminated soil on site. The second one was a plug an advanced uh, plug uh, for a well that used a combination of expandable steel rings and asphalt as a sealant. But the third one and the most exciting is casing expansion and that's the graphic I sent along. And that is uh, often wells as they mature, they, they leak up the outside. There's, um, there's a cement in a well, uh, run steel pipe in a well that's cemented on the outside. Over time, over time the cement deteriorates and you get a leak up the outside called a surface casing vent flow. And his idea was controlled casing expansion. We would run in and expand the casing from the inside, recompress the cement and shut off the gas. And that is probably the most exciting technology in the suite right now is casing expansion. I have been involved in my career in the well, well bore abandonment construction business for some time. And uh, I've followed my brother-in-law's technology and so when I was asked to come in and help out with the project, uh, when he took ill, I, uh, took the, I took the slide deck around to about 20 different oil companies. So what do you think of this? And pretty well, everyone is intrigued. So we're, we're just in the process of doing field testing. Uh, we did our first com commercial or non-commercial, had to subsidize. We did our first field test of the new setting system just a couple months ago. Uh, we did expand casing in the well, and the first time in history actually. And we did actually disrupt the gas flow. We're just doing some more field testing. We're hoping to be back in the field in the next couple of weeks. But this will be a game changer if and if we can prove it works. And it has to work. Uh, in the sense, it has to work to be commercially viable. But this would be the most exciting development in reducing the cost of shutting off subsurface methane emissions in history. And so it's an exciting project, and um, and everyone agrees. It is commercially useful. I, I, I stepped in in October to help out. Obviously, the COVID, uh, like everyone else in the world, uh, got a little bit of a curveball coming out of uh, left field that we hadn't planned on. Uh, but yeah, no overall, kidding. I do, yeah, I do believe the genie's out of the bottle and that uh, casing expansion is going to become a routine. But the early research uh, was done on this theory 
of expanding the casing and reform reformatting the cement in the well was originally conceived by Shell and the University of Louisiana back in 2014. And they wrote uh, technical papers on how this ought to work. Shell has gone down the path of a system that accomplishes the same thing in a much different way. And they have done some field testing. So we're not lone rangers in this field. Um, one of the largest oil companies in the world actually sponsored the development of similar technology. I think we have a better mousetrap. I think that uh, the, the method that we're using to expand the casing is more effective. And uh, we're actually have a bit of dialogue going on with Shell about working with the regulators to have them understand why this might work. But I do believe that this will become, uh, again, the genie's out of the bottle, I believe. This, this is an entirely novel and unique innovation. And I do believe that using casing as something other than a barrier in your well will be adopted worldwide in, in the not too distant future. This, is, uh, we're not, this, this isn't gonna go away. If, 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 our, if our tool doesn't work, I can't see why it won't, but I mean, it is still R&D. We are in a challenging business environment. But course, this, yeah. will be part of, this will be part of the industry's uh, toolbox for a long time to come. And a real positive advancement in getting ahead of the game. Well, I guess the hope is if you want, if you want, if you can get it to the market within this time frame of when the funding for the well abandonment come, is coming through, that's a good opportunity for the company to to grow the grow in the market um, with with uh, properly sourced funding um, at play. Is that right? Uh, I think actually it doesn't really matter when it works. Uh, I think obviously having all this activity in this specific area of the industry. Uh, yeah. If it worked right now, it'd be better. <laughs> but I do, I do believe that we have cut the. Uh, I was just actually applying for some government funding, and I was going through the. One of the things you have to do uh, for uh, to get emissions reduction funding is you have to calculate the greenhouse gas emissions of the process. So what I'm just working on as we speak is I looked at the conventional method of of shutting off a, a leaking well which is you bring on a rig and you haul in all the equipment, you blow holes in, you pump cement. And then we, when we're done, we'll be able to come in with a waterline truck and do it in about three hours instead of two days with one piece of equipment instead of 10. And the actual greenhouse gas reductions in the setting process are reduced by over 90%. And this mm. means we're, you know, we're, done, we're done burning diesel fuel and gasoline. Uh, but more importantly, the cost is uh, reduced by also about uh, 90%. So this is one of those, uh, it's, it, that's really the definition of, uh, of any successful technology, as you know from the many people you talk to, is if you can come, something, come up with something uh, that does an essential job at a fraction of the cost in a more efficient process, you got a winner. So the, the yeah. textbook definition of what new technology is meant to do uh, is right in the wheelhouse of the casing expansion technology. How long has this? How long has this been in development for? Uh, about five years. It is uh, possibly poor Dale. Probably the worst five years in the history of the industry. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, well, if you look back to any, you know, yeah, any, no uh, kidding. It, yeah, you know, there should be some. Uh, there should be some uh, some control mechanism of when genius strikes. It's when you get the brain, the brainchild to save the world. It would be really nice if you could do it when the world wasn't disappearing around you. So, so he has actually uh, what he's accomplished in this in this era, in this last five years. Of course, goes back to 
uh, late 2014 when the price well collapsed the first time, uh, the ill-fated OPEC meeting. And so five years from now, uh, we were on a slide from which we've never fully recovered. So what mm. he did in the time that, what he accomplished and the interest he gained and the capital he raised in the market environment he was in uh, is a testament to the cleverness of the invention, really. Mm. Um, if this were back in uh, a, what, what I classify as a normal market, and I'm going to call a normal market the one I was fortunate enough to spend most of my career in, um, this baby would be, we'd have got this thing field tested. And <laughs> worked out. It would have been commercial in no time. Well, you know, the, the, the oil, uh, the oil and gas sector really changed. I mean, a lot of ways it changed the world, um, you know, the combustion engine and things like that. And, and, uh, and now it's sort of, it sort of gets dumped on. And, uh, so which, <laughs> which really leads well, dovetails very well into, uh, it's almost like someone should have wrote a book about kind of the, the the rise and fall of of the of the oil and gas industry. So um, I, I you I think you came up with a good name. <laughs> yeah, from miracle to menace. Yeah, I was. Um, it was about uh, it was spring about two years ago, and the battles were raging, and the, uh, the the energy east had just been canceled because of opposition in central Canada. The battle was on. John Horgan had been elected BC, and the battle was on over Trans Mountain. And we were getting all this advice. Uh, the Trudeau government um, had been elected, and and we'd lost the Keystone uh, XL pipeline in late 2015 because of Obama. We'd lost the Northern Gateway because uh, of an election promise because of Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, we'd lost uh, Energy East due to the complexities. Uh, we'd lost uh, Trans Mountain was war over Trans Mountain and everyone's saying, well, look, Alberta, why don't you just do something else? And it, it sort of triggered a nerve in the, uh, you know, do what else? Uh, you know, people don't seem to understand what it is. So the reason I wrote the book, uh, the book, I picked the title from Miracle to Menace because, of course, as you said in your intro, that this really was the miracle fuel that, that powered the industry. It started with coal. But the second that oil, they discovered that oil was better than coal in the sense it really, oil really got launched by the British Navy when they discovered the density, they, they could, uh, uh, the power of, of oil as opposed to coal uh, to, to, pump, to, to uh, power their warships. So it became a strategic resource in her early last century after it was discovered in the Middle East. But anyway, it was uh, seen as a miracle until recently. And so the, the point of the book is that people would say, well, you know, people in Alberta really ought to do something else uh, than mm. perhaps you ought to diversify in renewables. And the point is, is, the main point of the book is Alberta without oil is Manitoba with mountains. I mean, there's nothing here. If you look at the geography of Alberta, uh, we're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we've got a thousand kilometers to the west, to the, to the Pacific Ocean across the Rockies. The most, there's nothing to the north. I mean, there's nothing but the Arctic. To the east, there's really no major concentration of population until you get to Toronto. And on, to the south, we share the U.S. border with the smallest and most underpopulated and economically disadvantaged states of the Union. So what are we going to do here? We didn't even get the good dirt. I mean, in the agricultural side, um, mm. you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan got way better arable land. 
you know, we've got this tilt where, where, where because we slope downward from the Rockies. Uh, so, so when we discovered Alberta was doing very, very poorly economically until the Duke in 1947, it was a have-not problem. And then they discovered oil at Leduc. It was inside North America. Oil was on a roll. And we never looked back. And so Alberta went from really uh, um, an economic basket case uh, coming out of the Second World War to one of the top producing uh, oil and gas producing jurisdictions in the world. And so when people say you ought to do something else, what I'm finding in the same way that we went through this when we talked about uh, inactive wells was when you say that we ought to do something else, it would be nice if you know what you're talking about. So this goes back to the things the industry talked about, 10% of the GDP, you know, the largest uh, resource sector in, by any measure. So when, when you say that you want to get out of the oil business, you really ought to do something else. Um, what you're talking about is taken to its logical extension. Uh, half the people in Alberta are going to have to leave and go do somewhere else. We can't all come to the West Coast and become whale watch tour operators. And so I figured that I would write this book, Miracle to Menace. I'm not arguing with the climate issue. It's just when you say to Albertans, uh, first of all, there's this myth uh, that well, we can get off oil tomorrow. All we need is more political will, which is just complete rubbish. There's no evidence of that anywhere. And secondly, the idea that Albertans could do something else, go into renewable energy, is just preposterous. I mean, you cannot export interruptible wind and solar energy anywhere from Alberta, let alone we serve. Remember, Alberta, we serve markets. We serve the west coast of BC, California, Gulf Coast of Mexico. We send oil and natural gas all the way to Quebec. We used to send gas to the east coast. That's been displaced by Marcellus oil. And so we, Alberta produces 3.9 million barrels of oil every day, and we consume 365,000 in gasoline and diesel fuel. So we have something like 3 million barrels a day of oil plus the gas, and then we sell that to people that seem to need it because they don't have it. And so that's what I want, Alberta, a carbon story. And that's why I told the story, because what made Alberta what it is is carbon, coal, oil, and natural gas. So that was the theme of the book, Miracle of the Menace Tells the Story. And uh, here we are, and um, living the dream. Does it, does it sort of walk through, the, like, like all those things you touched on, does it, does it walk through the actual history? How much time in it um, is sort of spent on the history and then uh, modern day? How did you sort of put that together? There's three sections. The book is called, the first, the first section of the book is called Carbon Development. And that's uh, how Alberta went from zero to hero, really, what we had when we started the early discoveries right. up to the modern era. So the, really the first section on current development ends with the numbers, really, the mathematical size of the industry, the jobs, the employment, the GDP. And, and more importantly, there's a secondary industry in oil that really nobody talks about, and that is the, the petrochemical industry, the oil service industry. We build, we build oil field service equipment and, and sell it all over the world. And so, again, the whole point is, here is what, when you say you don't want to do this anymore, here's the numbers and here's the history of what you're talking about and how, how it was developed. The second section was, I wrote that for my own interest, was called Carbon Politics. And Carbon Politics is how did oil go from a miracle fuel to the end of life on Earth as we know it. And so I talked about both the federal politics, the provincial politics, you know, the National Energy Program, when they love it and they hate it, the pipelines and so on. 
but really went into the history of climate change, of all the problems we have in the world. How did climate change get to the top of the list? I'm, I'm a senior citizen. I'm in my, my mid-60s. When I was a kid, uh, we were worried about uh, a nuclear war, actually. I used to come home from school and ask my parents if we were going to build a bomb shelter. Like I just do, The world's always had problems. Uh, problems have been peace and hunger and war and, and medicine. And somehow um, climate change eclipsed every other problem on the earth as the number one problem we in the West should solve. How did that come to be? So there's that story. And then the last section is carbon future. And that is, how does it look? And what's very interesting is the, is the statistical, all the statistical reports indicate, no matter what we're told, that oil and gas has no future. There's no statistical evidence of this based on, uh, based on population growth, economic growth, and GDP. There's no credible forecaster in the absence of a non-existent technological investment. There is no evidence that we're going to be using less fossil fuels in 20 years than we are today. The world wants in. And so on. And it's also, so I went through the future carbon. I went through the, the fossil fuel divestment movement. I went through a whole chapter called all the good news you've never heard. And that is the, the child mortality rates falling, the education rates increasing, the birth rate declines as companies, as, as, as uh, countries modernize. There's just a ton of good news out there. But the old saying and the, the old saw in the news business, I've been a writer for 40 years, they say no news is good news. In fact, good news is no news. <laughs> good news doesn't sell. Did you know, for okay. example, 7.7 people, 7.7 people, billion people did not die yesterday? I'm just saying, you know, if anybody right. cares. And then uh, it ends up with carbon future. And I, you know, I end the book with saying that Alberta is really good at this. And what we should be doing is we should be the innovators leading the world to more efficient oil and gas production. Of course, that's what we're doing in Winterhawk, actually put it in the book. What we are is very, very good. And we're a highly uh, regulated jurisdiction. We care about carbon. We care about the environment. We care about safety. Instead of getting out of the oil business, and you've seen this before as we try to fight back, the world needs more Canadian oil. We should become the epicenter for an intelligent paced carbon transition and become a leader in carbon sequestration, in advanced wellbore abandonment techniques, and advanced processing, and all those things. We can do that. Hydrogen, I'm a big hydrogen fan. I'm a big carbon technology fan, graphene. We should, if you take the hydrocarbon molecule apart, there's hydrogen and carbon. Well, hydrogen in itself is the cleanest fuel on earth. Carbon is the building block of life, civilization, graphene, and so you go. You really want to get out of the hydrocarbon business? Okay, if you think this through, you don't. So that's how the book ends. Is the, three, the third section is optimistic. We're going to be in the fuel business for a long time, and we should be supported, not, uh, not victimized. You know what? What struck me is, you know, you, you see it sometimes. It's 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 sometimes it's easier to go after someone who's doing it well. It's kind of like a star, the LeBron James of basketball. It's really easy to criticize him because the spotlight is on him, and he's the best player on the on the court. Um, and there's eight other guys on the team that are not pulling their weight, but he gets he gets dumped on, and he says something that people don't like, and. You know, everybody attacks him, and it's it's uh, it really when you were talking about it, it really reminds me of that because Alberta is sort of in the world of oil and gas. 
is like this, you know, lighthouse on the hill type thing. And yet it's, I mean, and it's kind of got attacked. I mean, even to the point where, I mean, it's Alberta, Alberta oil is, is in, a, in a way is getting landlocked because you can't reach agreements to do to twin pipelines and all sorts of things like that, you know, and, and I, I hope that at some point, you know, the, and, and I, I think maybe even little things like this show and the book you're writing and that it'll it'll help people just just at least educate them on, you know, pick your battles. You know, <laughs> don't don't run LeBron James out of town because your team probably isn't going to win if you do. Right. Uh, well, it is. It drives us nuts here in, in the West. Uh, we've got a tanker ban on the West Coast. And mm -hmm. that was politically productive, and they're running tankers full of foreign oil down the St. Lawrence. Uh, it is really frustrating. 97% of the oil in the world is not produced in Alberta. It used to be 100 million barrels a day. The forecast indicated it'll come back. And there are no other jurisdictions held to this standard. Uh, no country, no major oil producing country fights elections on shutting down its major resource industry. None. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, the polarization that you're seeing in Alberta politics, the, the Wexit, the anger, the, the malcontent, um, it is, it is, it's, it's real. And it's not, it's not that it, it's, it, it's because that the debate is shallow and disingenuous. And that's the point I made in my book. If you know everything in that book and you think that if, you know, I, I actually said at the end of the book, when I wrote, I, I, the, the book is straight reporting, but when I, when I wrote the, the epilogue at the end, you know, if, if, if shutting down the oil sands was all it would take to arrest the GHG growth and GHG emissions and carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, I think we could crowdfund that globally in a heartbeat. <laughs> and we'd be at the top of the list. Where do I side? You know, you can have, you know we'll, we'll do it, you know, but it won't work. This is the, this is the tragic part is that it's it's symbolism is that is that some some canadians are are willing to sacrifice um they call it virtue signaling and sacrifice their fellow canadians so they can sleep better at night you know the climate change alarms me i'm doing something about it next and uh, so those of us in the business those of us that sell you the fuel so you can drive to the pipeline protest to keep you warm in the winter when you'd freeze to death because the wind and solar isn't working uh, we, we we really struggle with uh, with the with the shallowness of the debate. That's, yeah. But I did the book is I, again the book is not a rant. The book is all it's all third party sources. There's an introduction where I tell everybody why I wrote it, and there's an epilogue at the end where I tell everybody what I learned. But the the rest of the book is I ended up doing a, quite a bit of research in human behavior. Um, how can how can people how can people depend on oil and hate it at the same time? Is it, what is it? So I ended up reading books on, uh, on, on human nature, trying to get, trying to peel back the onion to fully understand how this debate could be this shallow and this disingenuous. And I, I had some success. It's, uh, it's, um, I learned a lot and so will anybody who reads it. Yeah, I, I, I hope people from seeing this do, do order it. And I, I think it is important. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a great name. It really is. If you, if you are interested in the energy sector, it's just, it's this perfect name for a book.
about it. Um, I want to talk a little bit um, about the uh, you you gave uh, you gave a presentation um, where did you the, at the Canadian Association of Geophysical Contractors and you did a presentation. And I want to talk a little bit about about the oil and gas recovery as well, just sort of as we're wrapping up the show. And I, you know, I, I don't want to do the thing where it's it's only bad news is is the only news that we talk about. So can you talk a little bit about what you see moving forward that could that could be uh, could be positive for the in- industry? The first thing that people don't realize because bad news, good news doesn't sell is the natural gas business has improved tremendously. Uh, the price of natural gas is materially higher at this time of year than it has been. This was a technical issue regarding, regarding the gathering system within Alberta. The Nova system, that all, a lot of the new gas is coming out of the northwest from the Montney, the geological formation that we share with British Columbia that's going to supply the LNG market. And the storage is in the southeast. And the main connecting line had to go down for maintenance. So they were pumping the spot gas. So what would happen during construction season in the summer is the price of ACO spot gas would go to zero. And I believe uh, the slide that I think the average price in, uh, in, in June or this time of year in 2018 was only 57 cents. And this a year ago was 75 or vice versa. And this year it's two. So the, the interesting thing about natural gas is yesterday's zero is today's hero in the sense that the companies that had natural gas, which used to be the most uh, prosperous uh, commodity in the basin, um, have gone to very, have very stable cash flow. And so they, they, the, the gas business is stabilized compared to a year ago. So as we, as we you know, crown our beer, and I'm not saying it's not awful, our budgets have been slashed, but gas, gas, product, gas has materially recovered. The second thing that's happened is after all the agony we went through with the, uh, with the with the price recoveries, the degree to which oils bounced back. Now, yesterday we got clobbered, lost 10% because uh, it was over-recovered. But as you recall, we started the year at 61 bucks and then went to minus 30, minus 41 day, that awful day. And then since that, we, we almost tagged 40 bucks here this week again. And so that is a number that nobody forecast as recently as two months ago. Now, part of that is lost on volume in the sense quite a bit of oil has come off the market, but everybody was agonizing. So the price of it has come back and all indications are it will come back. The, the, the area there, I, I've got a, a slide I put together from the Energy Information Administration, which is out of Washington, DC, which is their forecast of the latest ones uh, just uh, this early this month, early in June. And they're looking at worldwide supply and demand out to the end of next year. And we were producing, a, we were, the world was consuming 100 million barrels a day going into the COVID crisis. And they think that's coming back later this year and by, uh, by the end of 2021, and we'll be back. The question is, where's the oil going to come from? Yeah. So what has happened, what, what's happened with this price collapse is there has been a major reduction in spending in new supplies. And so the, the, the old saying, the old saw goes that the best thing for low oil prices is low oil prices. So there's been huge cutbacks. The natural decline rate of most of the reservoirs in the world is five to 7%. Meaning that if you do nothing, if we produce 100 million barrels a day this year, next year, if you don't drill, you're at 93. Uh, one of the old sayings from the 1980s that a grocery store is very profitable if you don't restock the shelf, but you're not gonna be in mm. business very long. 
So because of the collapse in prices, people are taking a, 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 a hall pass or taking a sabbatical on their reinvestment. So as, right. as demand recovers, and it will, it will recover because people want to go back to work. The, the thing that people have to appreciate is that oil, whether it ought to be or not, and regardless of what they say in the paper, oil is still an essential commodity uh, for in, in everyday life, in everyday modern life. So demand is going to come back quicker than supply. So a lot right. of people are looking out and they say this, this is going to recover later this year. It's already recovering. I would say that today, uh, uh, in, in June of 2020, cash flow from production, from existing production, is materially higher than people thought it was going to be as little as 60 days ago. Now, we're yeah. not out of the woods yet. There's a lot of issues with... Um, with bank covenants and, and you know there's lots of problems is this real will it last as the price goes up will oil production come back on stream but what i liked about that energy administ information administration forecast this is the second most of, of the two agencies in the world studying this subject there's the international energy agency in paris and that's the eia out of dc and this is one of the top two forecasters in the world and they're looking at supply and demand the decline rates all the factors and they're, they're, uh, and they're not promoters. They're looking at a big comeback. Uh, another aspect of this is the, the light tide oil, the Permian Basin phenomena was uh, very, really that is the most expensive oil on God's green earth. Uh, that is gonna be a real struggle, uh, getting people back into that business. Uh, the oil sands are different. The oil sands, once a plant is up and running, are actually, we're getting back to the price where oil sands again are quite stable and developing a positive cash flow. So it's really, really hard. Uh, you really got to look under a lot of rocks to find good news. But uh, I, I put together that that handful of slides just to say the light at the end of the tunnel is uh, yeah, not a train. Uh, the last slide that I put together was the employment data. And that was the latest Stats Canada uh, employment data from uh, April of, uh, uh, from April to January, the various declines. And so, you know, the oil and gas guy's been hurting, but it's sort of interesting sectorally. The the part that's been clobbered has really been uh, tourism and recreation. Uh, they have really, really hurting. So the oil jobs, because it is in the, like food and agriculture has got a minor decline of only a couple of percent because you got to have it. Uh, oil right. was fine for a while because it was in storage. But I guess the message there is that, that, that again, that, that the idea that, you're doing okay because somebody's doing worse is not particularly helpful if you can't pay the no. rent. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, I can say that this sector, and we have been seeing that, that the energy industry or the oil and gas industry has the ability to help the country recover if you give us a chance. And all the data that I've presented in that slideshow indicates, look, Canada wants, Canadians want to go back to work. We need to go back to work. This is a sector that if the opposite, if you just quit throwing up roadblocks, if we didn't have to fight with our fellow Canadians, here's a sector that can go back to work soon, create good paying jobs, start paying taxes, and when they start opening restaurants and hotels again, somebody will have the money to go there. So it's, uh, it's not as, again, good news is it doesn't sell. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more bullish on the sector than many than many, but of course I have the luxury of, uh, of um, well, sort of semi-retired. I, I don't have to go duke it out. There's many, many, many. many. <laughs> 
Well, well, and and well, and we had the luxury, David, of of having you on and actually walking us through some of these these things. And um, and it, it was nice to be able to. I always like the shows, and I've said it many times on the shows. The one the 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 episodes where we can zoom in and out, so we get right down to a technology that's that's in an oil well, and then we're zooming back out on looking at it on a global scale. Uh, it's, it's my favorite type of show. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I go around to when there was conferences and live events. Um, I go around to a lot of events. There's a lot of, of speaking in the bubble, which you have to do. You have to educate people within your circle and, and raise the bar and, and develop new technology. Um, but I think it's heavy industry, mining, energy. Um, again, I've said it many times on the show, I think we need to do a better job of reaching out to people and just educating them, not even telling them how to think, just letting them know some facts, the new technology that's been developed. And so I really do appreciate you coming on and reaching out to that portion of our audience and just giving them some education. I hope they buy the book to learn a little bit more. There you go. Just, just on that subject, the interesting thing that, that hurts those of us in the resort business, resource business is it's still all the resources, and I'm talking mining and forestry and oil and gas and mm -hmm. agriculture. This is what still pays the rent in this country. But 80% yeah. of the population now lives in urban centers, and that's where the votes are. And that is the polarization. There's so many of, of, of Canadians, of our fellow Canadians, they don't, when they go to the gas pump, they don't know where it comes from. When they go to the grocery store, they don't know where it comes from. When they build a house, the, the lumber shows up. They go to the Home Depot, and there it is. And, and it, we really have to, as a resource-producing country, this, is, this challenge is not confined to oil and gas. It's confined to all primary resources. That's still what we do. We're good at it. And uh, we, 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 we ignore or, or make it difficult for this sector at our own peril. And I love the platform. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, I thought maybe what we should do is on the buildings. I, I live in an apartment in Vancouver. And uh, what, what we should do is on all the buildings, we should just have a list of resources that went into developing that building. <laughs> like a plaque <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. on every single one. <laughs> that yeah. would change people's perspective. So thanks a lot, David. Uh, I do appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Um, that was... I. That was a great interview from my perspective. I hope you enjoyed it. David did. It was he's so good at walking through. We we had done pre-interviews and and um you know planned out what we were going to touch on, and he did such a nice job of walking us through these multiple facets of the industry. I hope he comes back on. Thank you for watching. There'll be a quick sign off for Gaudi from Gaudi to tell you where to go, where to subscribe, where to support, all these wonderful things we're doing together. Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode of Crownsman Energy. Thank you so much for watching. Please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Also, if you would like to help support the production of the show, head on over to crownsman.com forward slash donations, where you will find two options, the five buck monthly subscription option and the support heavy industry one-time donation option. Again, that is crownsman.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much for your support and we will see you on the next episode.